RadioInfluence.com. Hey gang, welcome to this week's episode of the Real Animals Podcast presented by Contender Boats. If you're looking to build yourself an incredible fishing machine, go to contenderboats.com and check them out today. This week, I'm going to do the podcast with a really, really good friend of mine, somebody that I really look up to, Captain Richard Seward. A lot of you know him as Mr. Trout. He's been fishing here for 60 years, 70 years, something like that, and uh, he is just absolutely a phenomenal guy, an incredible fisherman, and uh, somebody that I look up to greatly. I hope you enjoy this podcast as much as I'm going to enjoy doing it. Joining me on today's podcast, uh, my very good friend, you, a lot of people know him as Mr. Trout, one of the, in my opinion, one of the legendary anglers here in the Tampa Bay area. And again, a very, very good friend of mine, a mentor to me, somebody that I look up to greatly, Captain Richard Seward. Richard, how are you today, buddy? I don't know. I've got to get my head to go back down now. <laughs> Y'all swelled up. <laughs> let's uh, let's start, Richard. Let's let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, let's go. Let's start back in the day. So so what is it? I mean, let's go back to your childhood. What what drew you to fishing as a kid? How did this whole thing start that created such a such an epic and, and ongoing career? Mike, I tell you what, I don't know what it was my dad was <clears throat> in the dredging business so i've been around water ever since i could walk okay and you know when you're around water there's uh there's fish there so they the first thing he did he bought me a rod and reel and i can't even tell you when i he bought me our first rod and reel and um because i was really young then the first uh really fishing trip that i can remember uh, really good. I think I was eight or nine years old. And uh, my brother was the one. My dad didn't fish. My dad didn't do much. And the only thing my dad did was work 12 to 16 hours a day to give me and the rest of the family whatever we needed, you know. Right. <clears throat> he didn't have time, you know, to to do the, the, you know, the luxury things. Sure. But my brother was always one. He loved to fish, and he loved to have me with him. And that was uh, that was good for me. Sure. But uh, like I said, I was about eight or nine years old, and uh, we went to uh, the the first trip I remember. We went to Double Branch, and my brother didn't have uh, a big boat. All he had was I think it was an eight foot pram, and uh, we had filled that pram full of so many fish that we couldn't get back in it. We just hauled on the sides <laughs> and pushed it along Double Branch, getting back up there. Nice. But that was back when you could get a fishing license, you know, a, a, one to sell fish. I think it cost you two dollars and fifty cents. Well, my brother had it, and, and he he made all his money for his fishing, and I mean for his rod and reels and everything else, and what he bought me <clears throat> off of the off of the fish we caught. Well, that's cool. So you're you're commercial but, uh, you're commercial fishing from way back. <laughs> well, even even when when I got older, I started doing it. You know, after my brother got so that he couldn't fish anymore, uh, but we used to go to Okeechobee and fish. We fished, but we fished mainly in the north end of the bay, right? And mainly Double Branch. And at that time, you could drive almost out all the way uh, to where we, you know, to, to the Double Branch area when you come in there. 
In fact, at one time there was a house out there. I think it was a commercial fisherman because they, uh, I had seen the uh, concrete blocks where the house had set before. Wow. But uh, now, uh, I'll tell you about all those hundreds of fish that we caught. Now, here's the thing, though. Most of them were, uh, I'd say, 12 to 14 inches, 15 inches. Most of your bigger fish were caught by the nets because at that time they could net uh, speckled trout. Right, okay, gill nets, right? They weren't interested in the small ones anyway. Right. So they only wanted to, so they took most of the big ones, or up in that area anyway. I don't sure. know if it was that bad everywhere else. But um, but that's when you could keep a 12-inch trout. In fact, my brother first started fishing, there wasn't any limit on the trout. You could just keep them. Wow. Uh, now, but, how, how were you catching and, them back then? Were you catching them on artificials then or just using shrimp? Or how were you catching them? Well, mainly when I started, it was... Uh, Mainly using shrimp. Okay. But I think it used to be able to get 20 dozen for $5 or something like that. Okay. It was, the shrimp were really cheap. Right. But then I went to <clears throat> artificials and we used, uh, or he started using a super dude. <laughs> super uh, dude. That's probably one you don't, you've never <laughs> even heard about. I haven't. I haven't. All, all it was was a jig, like, like you know, what, like we've got now with the, uh, but it had uh, deer hair on the back. Okay. So it was more of a more of a more of a bucktail jig than a yeah okay. yeah and um, but it was a bullet shape and it just well back then I don't care what you threw out there when the fish were, when they were biting you just and my brother he he knew he's the one that really taught me what to look for and when to go that's like double branch he wouldn't go to a double branch and on incoming tide. He said, they don't bite. Well, one, he's talking about not biting. You might only catch 15 or 20. Right. <laughs> he said, they, they, they like that outgoing tide. Once well, again, catch out 100. And like I said, it was nothing to catch two or 300 fish. Wow. Huh. That's crazy. The two of us. That's crazy. Now, now of course, now, he probably caught three to every one that I caught. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it, we, uh, he was just, uh, he just, like I said, he taught me started me off fishing and taught me everything I wanted to know. Now, here's the other thing. We weren't fishing with spinning tackle. Oh, really? I started, I started off with a, uh, what was it? It was a Shakespeare, not a Shakespeare, you know, Shakespeare. I can't even remember now, but it was a closed face reel. Okay. Uh, and, um, you know, when the, when the spool turned, the handle turned. <laughs> nice. Nice. So, you know, you used your, even when we were using shrimp, you, you had to put a, a good size weight on there, at least a half ounce weight, so you could cast it. But back then, we we stood right on the edge of the channel, and we didn't, we weren't casting more than, I would say, at the max, 35 feet. Wow. And then hit the bottom and just hang on. That's great. That's great. So when did as you, I got old? Go ahead, when when let's let's shift gears a little bit. When did when did when did this turn into? I think I want to become a guide. When did you start guiding, Richard? Well, my son wanted to become a guide, and uh, of course now he wanted me to pay for it, <laughs> pay for the school. Right. So I called over to get the price on it and everything else. He's, and the guy said, "Well, we got a special going." If you buy one, uh, 
and there's a second person can come in for half price. I said, sign me and my son up, because I was just going to sign him up. Right. And that, that, that's really how I got started in it, because, uh, and, and you know, it, <clears throat> what it did, it changed my, you know, my life quite a bit, because I went from, you know, it seemed like every time I take somebody fishing, they, they always forgot their tackle box. <laughs> that might have been because, but that might have been because you were the Bubba Jigs guy at the time, right? Well, at that time, I wasn't Bubba Jigs though. This, oh, okay. Uh, I was just, I got my fishing. What, what was I? I think you were the Bubba Jigs. I think you were the Bubba Jigs guy then, pretty close to it because I, it I was, was. Yeah, I think I just started it. I think Rick, because I think Rick, Rick's been how long? So how long have you been guiding technically? How long have you been Captain Richard Seward? 15 years. So I've been doing it longer than you have? Yep. Wow. That's crazy. <laughs> That's crazy. But, uh, I would not have thought that. Interesting. But you were, yeah, and you were Bubba Jigs before then. You were Bubba Jigs before you were guiding. <laughs> you, you could be right. It yeah. Could, uh, that could have been back 20 years. Yeah, yeah. You were, you were, you were. Well, yeah, my age. You can't keep up with what went on yesterday. I hear you. What went on years ago. <laughs> I hear you. I'm here for some of that, my friend. I got you. So so we can blame this whole thing on, on Ricky Jr., your son, and uh, a dear friend of mine, which is pretty interesting in its own right, considering that your son Rick and I played slow-pitch softball together, won a world title together in 97. Um, yep. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. And I wasn't even – I wasn't guiding yet then. Um, I'm not even sure if Rick, the the very first keeper snook I caught on Tampa Bay was back there in the late 90s sometime, and your son put me on that fish in Double Branch. Of course. How in, yeah, of course. Right. Go figure, right? How interesting is that? But old Ricky Jr. And then Ricky Jr. and I, like I said, played ball together in 97. We actually probably played 96, 97, 98 together. Uh, winning that world title, uh, my aluminum business, Anderson Screens, was the sponsor at the time. So that was a uh, god. That was a lot of fun. We had so much fun, and then Rick and I started fishing together quite a bit. And uh, so part of this, I think, is Rick's fault. The reason that I now I don't have a life. I have two radio shows, a TV show, a podcast, and you know, guide business. So the fact that I don't have a day off, I'm going to blame that all on Rick Seward. How about that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I like. No, I tell you what. That- he is uh, I, th- I think if there's anybody in the world that likes fishing as much, if not more than me, was him. He lights up like a, he lights up like a Christmas tree. He really does. He always I'm, did. He always lit up when he sets the hook on a big fish. He lights up like a Christmas tree in Times Square. It's absolutely spectacular thing to watch. I mean, you you put the we, love we of fishing in that boy. Well, we were sitting side by side one time. We went out there, and that's when the snook were, uh, well, every year, just like the, just like right now, the snook had ganged up on the north end of the bay, and uh, I went somewhere else. I think I went over uh, just north of the uh, Franklin Bridge there, fishing that area. Right. So he calls me, and he says, hey, Pop, the snook are going wild over here. I said, yeah, okay, how long's it, how, how many you got? He said, well, we've got 24. <laughs> I said, why didn't you call me on number four? <laughs> <laughs> I come you waited the twenty four to call me. So 
I told the guy that my charter, I said, we're moving. And I said, quickly. And so anyway, we went over and uh, it was all the way up on the north end of the bay. And I pulled up alongside of him. Well, he had, I think, three more by the time I got there. And uh, what the, the thing that most people just don't believe is my group quit counting at 110 snook on, that we caught. Oh, yeah, I believe it. I believe it. Now, Ricky had more than that. Yeah. Most of us had three people on board, and there wasn't a time that we didn't have – no, it was four, four in each boat. And one guy had to quit on my boat just to help his friends get the get the snook off because I could only take off one at a time. Right, exactly. I and, just had a, I had a 75-fish day here uh, last Friday, and uh, by their count, 75 fish. I wasn't really counting because I was busy taking fish off. Uh, but that was just in the morning. Um, so I believe it for sure, especially back when that, you know, when that would have been, especially up on the north end of the bay where it can get pretty fishy at times. Let's, uh, let's change gears again here and let's talk about, uh, let's talk about FCA. I know you were one of the Tampa members that kind of started, helped launch FCA, which we now know is, as CCA, Coastal Conservation Association. But back then it was Florida Conservation Association. Tell me about that little adventure, Richard. Um, Frank Sargent called me and said, do you know anything about this, uh, organization that's coming into, uh, into Tampa? I mean, into Florida, uh, he said, they're, they're big out in Texas. Well, I had, uh, I had heard something about it. And so he says, uh, they're, they're, <clears throat> they, I think they want to have a meeting here someplace. And so, uh, I, um, uh, I got a hold of the guy that was coming in here and, I, and he told, told me what he wanted to do and everything else. And, uh, so we had the first meeting, I think it was at the, uh, old Tribune building down on the river there. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think that was it. Yep. And, uh, there was me and, uh, Larry Hart. And I forget the other, there was, there was four or five guys that I got to know, you know, from, uh, and knew me from fishing. And, uh, so then we, the, the second meeting that we had, we set the organization up. Uh, I think Larry Hart was the first, uh, president and I really didn't want to do anything cause I just didn't think I had enough time to do it, but I right. did. Right. And, uh, ended up putting about 600 hours in the first year. <laughs> to it. And then that's, that's how I got started. And we just, uh, it's just built up till, uh, till we started the, uh, where it really took off is when we started the, the, um, to ban the, uh, the nets. Right. Uh, especially on the, on the, uh, redfish. Cause right. they were, <clears throat> they were netting all the big redfish and just about all the big trout. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I, I remember the net ban deal and i remember how big it was and how um and i wasn't nearly as deep into the media side obviously back then as i am now um but i can remember feeling the um the the overwhelming joy in the fishing community that we ended up getting that passed yeah you know uh at one time i had to have my line tapped because I got so many death threats. Really? 
Wow. Oh, yeah. And commercial and, uh, and commercial well, guys take what, that stuff serious. What happened was that, uh, you know, like I said, Frank Sargent and I had become really good friends. And we went, we fished all over the state together. Right. Uh, and I'll tell you a quick story. I went with him. We went over to, that's when Mark Nichols got started. DOA and we went over to him because uh, he wanted to get his DOAs out. And uh, I got over there and I went to get my suitcase out of the back of Frank's car. And uh, guess where it was? It was in his driveway (laughs) (laughs) back in Ruskin. But anyway, uh, Frank, every time he wrote something, he'd say, well, Richard said this and Richard said this and Richard's going to organize this and Richard's going to organize that. So most of the commercial guys just thought that was the, that was the seat in uh, FCA here in Tampa. Right. But really and truly, um, it was, uh, you know, the, the rest of the group, there was a nice knit group and we got together. We was, we were getting a lot of people involved in it, but Frank knew me so well. And he said, and, and most people knew me because of all the articles. I think he ended up writing something like almost 200 articles about me. Uh, but you know, everybody knew me from the article. So he just, I asked him one time, I said, Frank, when did I say that? You know, about what, something that he wrote in the paper. About the, he says, well, I didn't get a chance to call you, but I knew what you were going to say. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Nice. But it ends up that these commercial guys, they knew me and it, they, my number was out there for anybody who wanted to call. Right. That was in the paper. Uh, cause they used my number to begin with. Right. So I began to get the death threat. So I called, you know, uh, somebody told me you need to call the police. And, uh, so I did. And then they, uh, they put a tap on the line and I don't know what happened, whether it got out that there was a tap on my line, but at least I could get in the death threats. That's crazy. And then we had a guy in a pickup truck try to run over me and another friend of mine when we were at one of the polls at the, uh, the day, you know, they were voting on it. Right. He, he come off the road down into the ditch and almost, you know, well, we, we had to run to keep from him running over us. Wow. So it was, do you it was rem- exciting. Back do, you, do you remember what year, <laughs> do you remember what year that was? Oh, good. good. I don't remember what year that was. I have to look that up. That'd be interesting. Uh, it was. It was when the, whenever they voted uh, on the um, closure. Right. That was it that happened. That's crazy. See, I guess it had been going on for about uh, oh, what three about three years before that. Well, it's interesting. But, uh, it's always interesting to me. You know the. It's unfortunate that the the powers that be. Um, the, you know, the tree huggers, the, uh, you know, your PETA and that group, uh, you know, for them to win any kind of battle against us, the best thing they can do is to get us fighting amongst ourselves. Uh, you know, the commercial fishermen, the recreational fishermen, you know, technically we're all, we're all in this together. It's our fishery. It's not the recreational guys fishery. It's not the commercial guys fishery. It's our fishery. Um, you know, we're the, the taxpaying public that, uh, 
you know, puts the money back into the estuary. So we should be able to share it together. And unfortunately, those groups, uh, National Marine Fisheries, I kind of include them in this as well. You know, they want us fighting amongst ourselves so that, that way they can control it. Because if we're fighting amongst ourselves, then we're not paying attention to the big picture. And the big picture is always the estuary. You know, what's best well, for they, the fishery? They found out how close-knit that the uh, Florida Conservation was because they put out a letter one time uh to call our state representatives and send them mail. And you know, they had to shut the lines down. Wow. That's how many phone calls they got in one day. They had to shut them down. Well, that's good. But you know, the the only uh, thing that I've got to say about the whole thing is I personally made an attempt to get a hold of the commercial fishermen at that time and let's sit down and talk and see if there's something we can work out here. I don't want to put you all out of business. Right. I used to be a commercial fisher myself. Sure. But, but, you know, when I joined the FCA, the first thing I did is I, I, I did away with my license, my, uh, commercial, my commercial license. license. Right. Uh, I just didn't figure, I didn't think it was fair for me to be selling fish and talking about, you know, conserving fish. Right. So I, that's what I did. I did away with my, my license. <clears throat> but they I don't know whether they were afraid of what we were doing, but they didn't want to have anything to do with us. And so our last choice, and I sure <clears throat> I was a little afraid of this closure thing because of this what you were talking about, these other groups that wanted to shut it down completely. Right. No fishing. Right. And that's what scared me. But uh it worked out. And uh, I still think <clears throat> that if we hadn't have done it, the mullet fishery, the trout fishery, I don't, I'm not too sure about the snook because the snook were protected before all this started happening. Right. But the redfish weren't. And the redfish, the total numbers of them were down so low that you were lucky to even even catch one, you know, at, a, at one time. Right. Well, and that's the, you know, that's the sad part about it is that was the big picture. You know, the whole goal there with the net ban was to protect the estuary. I remember fishing double branch, Wade fishing double branch with your son, Rick, uh, on a Saturday and catching, I don't know, maybe a hundred on a 52 M mirror lure. Um, between the two of us, we probably caught a hundred. And I remember going back on Sunday with Rick and catching two and the two we caught had significant scarring on them to where you could tell that the nets had come through double branch that night and just well, they were, cleaned them right out. I caught them out there one night and, uh, well, I'm not going to tell you what I did, but, uh, <laughs> I caught them out there that night and I don't think they wanted to come back. <laughs> I told them I'd be waiting on them. Well, that's good. Uh, but, uh, and I'm not proud of it, but, it was something I just thought needed to be done. I'm proud of you. How about that? <laughs> I'm very proud of you. I like that. I don't but, think they'd want me to catch them out there doing it either. But, you know, that's one of those things. That's kind of in the past. And, and I was just, I thought it was interesting, you know, again, you know, in talking about 
Captain Richard Seward and what you've meant to our fishery and our estuary, you know, getting involved with FCA back before it was CCA and doing all that stuff and all the seminars and all the articles and, you know, all the time you've spent. I mean, we've done fishing conversations together and I don't know how many radio shows you've done in your lifetime with Captain Mel Berman and then myself and Mike Mahoney and Ben Marshall. And, you know, you've been a guest and so helpful to this fishing community. Um, I just, I think that, uh, you're a special person and, you know, we, we talk about the Mount Rushmore of Tampa Bay fishing, um, with people like Captain Mel Berman on it, uh, people like Frank Sargent, the legendary outdoor writer from the, uh, Tampa Tribune. Um, and, and I, I definitely see your face on that, uh, on that monument because of all the things you've done. Give me one thing, Richard, um, Give me one thing, if you could narrow it down, which probably won't be easy because you fished here for a day or two, but what's your fondest memory all time of fishing Tampa Bay? You nope. know, Mike, the, the most thing that I used to enjoy more than anything, and we did it several times, and I can't pick out one that was any better than the others, that we used to go to Double Branch, uh, after Thanksgiving and camp out there for a week. <laughs> right. That was when you could camp out there. Right. We, and uh, <clears throat> the uh, guy that threw us off the last time, that was when they, you know, made a park out of it and everything else. He's, I said, well, we always clean up. He said, I know you do. He said, but if I let you do it, then I might have to let somebody else do it. Right. He said, I know when you leave here, this place is going to be spotless. And he said, you cover up your hole, you dig for the fire and everything else. But he said, it's the other people that I'm worried about. Yeah. Always somebody oh, reckoning for the. Well, we did it about, we did it about 15 years. Nice. And I'd have anywhere from always Rick. Uh, I always, I always took him with me everywhere I went. Anytime I camped or anything like that. And <clears throat> I used to tell him, you know, there's snakes out here. You've got to watch. You got to look, and then we we had to we had to kill one one time because you know they're territorial. When you set up a camp, he'll run off, but he's going to come back. Right. And so I did I did kill that one. Of course, it was almost self defense when I killed him. But <laughs> I showed Ricky. I said, "This is what you can walk up on. If you walked up on him and he bit you, I can't get you to the doctor fast enough that you're not going to die." Right. Right. Being out there at the but park for that, sure. You know, I always trusted him. I said, here you go, go. Right. And he's he's been all over that place out there. No places doubt. Places that I didn't even start going to. <laughs> right. And he took a friend with him one time, and the, the, the guy's uh, father, they disappeared. And uh, he came to me, and he says, I can't find the boys. I can't find the boys. I said, they can't be more than 200 yards away. I said, they're out there. He says, yeah, but I remember you telling us about that snake. I said, my son, he's good enough. I trust him enough, and you should trust your son. <laughs> right. He'll figure it out. And, but uh, anyway, he, he finally calmed down. And, but when he when the boy come back, he wouldn't let him go anywhere. He, <laughs> <laughs> especially with Rick. Because Rick would just take off out through there, out well, through the woods and break out into the water on the other side. Well, I will. we always can't. I will tell you, I will tell I will tell you I want to tell you one of my very favorite memories uh of of fishing with Captain Richard Seward um is the show that you and I filmed uh probably 5 years ago now maybe 6 
um, you, myself, and my bride, Miss Beth, uh, up there in Double Branch, and you laughing and joking and having just a blast uh, making the cast for Miss Beth so that she would be in the perfect spot to catch a snook on every throw so that she completely whooped my butt that day. Um, she had I'm a smile. Gonna... She had a smile from ear <laughs> to ear. That day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's one of my very favorite memories of, uh, of fishing with my bride. She had so much fun fishing with you and, uh, it made a great TV show again, Richard Seward, you know, uh, I just, uh, there's no way that the fishing community here in Tampa Bay can thank you enough. I can't thank you enough for all you've meant to, to me, uh, to real animals, to, uh, to my fishing business, to, you know, the growth uh, of myself as a fisherman and as a man uh, looking up to you, not only uh, for the fisherman that you are, but the incredible man that you are. Uh, I, you know, I lost my father uh, about 12 years ago now, and uh, I've always kind of looked up to you as a second father, just in, again, the way you carry yourself, the way you do your business, uh, the way you're a God-fearing man, all those things. So uh, I just want you to know I really appreciate you joining me on the podcast today. I appreciate the uh, the person you are in life and in my life, and uh, I'll, uh, I'll, uh, I look forward to talking to you soon, my friend. Thanks for hanging out with me today. Uh, Mike, and I enjoy doing things with you more than anybody else I do things with, other than Ricky. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair enough. I'll but take that. <laughs> I've always been – you know, trying to treat people the way that you'd like to be treated. Sure. And, you know, when people pay you to go on a boat, make them have a good time, even if they don't catch fish. Right. Even if you do have to tell them, your cork's down. <laughs> right. And then they say back to you, well, I don't feel anything. <laughs> We're just real. <laughs> cork's down for a reason. But, but it's, I just, I never get mad at people on the boat. I, don't know, I did one time because the guy got, <clears throat> I allowed too much uh, liquor on the boat. Well, I didn't, they bought beer and I didn't know they brought liquor to him. And one of them uh, fell into my rod, stuck one of the rods into his stomach. Oof. And uh, so I took him back to shore and the guy, <laughs> one of the guys asked me, he says, uh, did we get a rebate? I said, well, there's $400 worth of rotten meals over there that are broken. Wow. Because he broke three of them. Yeah. And I'm gonna charge as you, you know. I'm charge you double. <laughs> well, you know, a rotten meal, it, it's easy to have $150 in it. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. And he broke the spinning wheels off at the, hand, you know, at the handle part. Yeah. But anyway, I just... Uh, 99, 99 and 9 of the time, I enjoy everybody that gets on my boat, but I want them to have the good time that I had. And that's the same thing with you. But now, Ricky does get mad at me about one thing. What's that? And that's talking to y'all on Sundays. <laughs> <laughs> Giving up too much information. He says, why did you do that? Everybody <laughs> in the world is going to be fishing over there now. I said, son, we don't own it. Yeah, somebody, somebody's going to figure somebody it out. Somebody else have a good yeah, they're going to figure it out anyway. Richard, we appreciate you, my brother. Keep uh, keep your outlook the same, my friend. Again, it's always good to talk to you, and uh, I know we'll talk again uh, on this weekend coming up for the radio shows, get fishing reports from you, all that good stuff. We'll talk soon, my friend. Thanks for joining me for the podcast. Thank you. All right, Y'all buddy. have a good day. Tight lines. Thanks, buddy. Hey guys, thanks for joining me for this week's 
podcast, Captain Richard Seward. Like I said, just one of my very favorite people. Uh, just an incredible guy and uh, somebody I really, really enjoyed talking to today. I hope you guys enjoyed it as well. Remember, Real Animals Podcast will be available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and ritampabay.com. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review, and let me know if there's anybody out there you would like me to do a podcast with. If there's anything you would like me to change about the podcast, any of that stuff, I'm open to all your suggestions. We appreciate you very much. Remember, you can follow us on Facebook slash Real Animals and on uh, Instagram at Real Animals Fish. Um, I'm sorry, at Real Animals TV on Instagram and then on Twitter at Real Animals Fish. Uh, So many of those social media tags, I forget which is which. But uh, make sure you follow us there. You can reach out to us there. Let us know how we're doing. Again, like I said, subscribe, rate, and review. We do appreciate it. I know some of you have reached out already and hollered at us about some people that you want us to podcast with, and I will definitely be setting those up. So far, some great ideas coming in, so keep them coming. Tight lines, and have a great day, everybody. This is an In the Trenches with Ian Beckles Quick Fix on Radio Influence. First of all, how did you like the Buccaneers draft? Um, I will say this. Uh, that coaching staff better be good. <laughs> they better be good. You're right. <laughs> You're right. You're right. That's also, And people ask me this uh, really through free agency. You know, when all these players are going out and the Bucs weren't signing anybody, they're like, oh, they're not signing anybody. I'm like, I'm like look, the best free agent pick the Bucks made this year was Bruce Arians. Better be. Okay. And in the draft, the way that I'm looking at it, when I look at this draft on paper – the the only thing I say is, yeah, what? They better know what they're doing, <laughs> and if they do, yeah. good for them. Hell yeah, they hit a home run. But come on, man, they picked. <laughs> they, they have Kendall Beckwith situation, mm. okay? Where not, they not they knew he was not going to play, mm. and I don't know if that dude's ever going to play again. Okay? He might not. They lose Quan Alexander. They mm. lose out on the bidding war to him, which Grant they shouldn't have been spending fifteen million a line. They weren't in that war, really. So right, you don't do that. The Jason Pierre-Paul thing happens. That's, you know, you can't really predict any of that. But Correct. the Gerald McCoy thing, you've known about this issue since about January. Mm. They go all the way until the fourth round without picking a trench player. What? I didn't get it either. So, I didn't get it. I, and it's weird. It's weird because individually, I can see some of these picks. I can go like, okay, Devin White. He's going to be a really damn good football player, I think. That's what I hear. But then after that, they go, I, and, and like, Right after that, they go Sean Bunting. It's okay, okay, I like Sean Bunting. Okay. But then they go corner, and then another DB, yeah. and then a and then a D end in the fourth round, and then a kicker. And then a kicker. Well, I just like on paper, it was one of the strangest drafts I've seen. And my only thought is that coaching staff better know what they're doing. In the trenches with Ian Beckles can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Podcasts, and RadioInfluence.com.